From October 24th to October 30th, there is the internationally celebrated Open Access Week. And since this podcast is about empowering researchers, universities and research organizations about making their science and their results available, this is a really great opportunity to actually talk about a really important topic that actually could support the use of science and scientific results in societies. And that topic is open science. So I'm psyched today to have someone on this podcast who is one of the best known professionals in the open science space. And his name is Robert Jan Smits. And he is the president of TU Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And he's the former director general of research and innovation of the European Commission. And he also was the open access envoy for the European Commission. And while being this open access envoy, he brokered deals with all major publishing houses. And he's gonna tell you how successful that was in some minutes in this episode. So let's get this episode started. I am your host, Julius Wische, and this is the Science Communication Accelerator podcast. Welcome to the <laughs> Science Communication Accelerator podcast. So welcome to the show, uh, Robert Jan Smits. Thank you very much, Julius. And your timing is great because just a couple of days ago, the 25th of August, the White House in the United States finally issued a statement that they're going to make federally funded research freely available without delay. So the timing of your podcast could not be better. There's a major breakthrough that also now the United States government is following the European model and has decided to make the results of publicly funded research immediately available to the citizen and society. Great news. Super. How was that before? Okay, before we jump into all of that stuff, uh, Robert-Jan, can you tell me how did you become the person that you are right now and why did you become so interested in working with this concept of open science? Well, I've been involved in the European Commission, as you rightly said, for many, many years, European science and innovation policy and, uh, and programs, uh, Horizon 2020, Horizon Europe. And at a given time, I asked a question because we were funding a lot of research projects. I asked a question to my uh, colleagues, um, what's happening with all these data which we generate? What's happening with all the scientific publication who has access to that? And uh, to my big uh, shock and surprise, uh, the information was that, you know, most of it is locked behind paywalls and not accessible immediately to the citizen and to society at large. And that made uh, me think, well, this is not good. If it's publicly funded research, uh, that means research funded by the taxpayer. The taxpayer should, of course, have access to the research results uh, through having the possibility to read and um, having the possibility, if we Google, not to jump, uh, to fall into paywalls, but to have access to the information. So that made me become interested in the dissemination of the results of publicly funded research and open access as such. Cool, yeah. When you would think about it and you would not really know the sector or this academia thing, then you would ask yourself, why was that not the case from the beginning on? Can you maybe give us the, the larger picture? How did it develop? Why is it that um, publishing houses are having or used to have or still are having such a strong um, yeah, position maybe when it comes to academic publishing? Well, in the old days, of course, uh, there were the learned societies uh, who published the papers of scientists or universities published their own papers. And at a given time, they decided to outsource that to uh, commercial companies. And these commercial companies decided to make a good business of it. 
uh, good business in the sense that they were providing the service uh, for publishing the article during the peer review, but they charged a hell of a lot of money for that. And they were introducing embargo periods uh, that you should uh, could not read immediately the results of the scientific publications on which you have been working as scientists that uh, took often six to 12 and perhaps even longer months. So from that point of view, gradually, the whole say field of scientific publication became in the hands of a couple of big commercial publishers who then more or less started to dictate the rules. And what they cleverly did is they uh, developed uh, uh, the so-called uh, indicator called the journal impact factor. Uh, they developed a system whereby if you would publish in one of their journals, you would be considered as a top researcher. And therefore the system could continue for many, many years because it was a very easy metric for the science community to measure quality. If you publish in this type of journals, behind paywalls, exclusive journals, then you are top-notch, then you are good, and then you should get a, a promotion at your, in your career at the university. So it became a very easy system to measure so-called scientific quality. Uh, not perfect, not ideal, but at least it was an easy system for the scientific community. So gradually, uh, the scientific community became caught in a cobweb where they felt uneasy also, wanted to get out, but it was also comfortable because there was a service provided and there was this easy metric, this indicator called the journal impact factor. Yeah, it's funny that you just directly come up with this impact factor because I totally agree. It's like it's we measure we as academics as yeah as a community we measure our impact by the number of how many other of our colleagues cited us instead of trying to figure out what kind of real impact in real life we actually actually uh, yeah achieved maybe and that that is that's well, and, funny, and it's and it? it's even worse. I mean, if you look at most universities across the world, uh, you are not rewarded for your education. You are not rewarded for the startups. You're not rewarded for the scientific support to policymaking. You are not rewarded for the science communication you do. If you go to schools to talk about the importance of science innovation, the only metric which is used to build a career is the number of uh, scientific publications and then uh, mostly behind paywalls as well. Mm. So it's a very bizarre system which the scientific community uh, created itself. So it's us? Absolutely. I think it's a big responsibility, the fact that uh, open access took so long, and we talk about for 30 years to take off uh, before really it has become now a kind of a common gold standard that has taken so much time. And it was mainly due to the fact that, of course, the scientific community felt very comfortable in its system with the service provided by the big commercial companies with information, uh, uh, with, 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 with this metric indicator that if you publish in these journals, you are top-notch. So it was very easy for everyone, for the management of universities to decide who deserves a career, uh, promotion and things like that. So yes, the scientific community is very much uh, the reason why the system could continue for so many years. And there's still many who would like that system to be continued. Mm. Can you say one sentence about who, would, who you would think that likes that this system continues? Maybe, a, is there anyone apart from the publishing houses? Because for them, as you said, it's a real good business model. But is yeah. there anyone in academia that you feel uh, they kind of like it? Is it because it's just easy to measure? And if you're good at writing articles, then then you then you then you're good, and that's why you would like to that this system continues as it is. Yeah. Well, I see it. I mean, there's a generational issue. There's of course the younger generation. It's all about sharing, eh? sharing cars, sharing you know houses. It's, it's, it's a completely different culture, and that is not 
existing with uh, many of the older scientists, so I think it's a culture element, but it also has to do with certain communities. The most difficult discussion I had with the chemists, uh, the chemistry departments, they were the ones who were very much stuck to the uh, subscription journals and wanted to continue with the uh, old system. And it very often led to very bizarre discussions, uh, which really uh, made me often fall off my uh, chair. I'll give you one example. Um, I was said that if in Europe, we would sign up to Plan S and would have the rule that you can only publish in open access journals. It would completely destroy international cooperation because uh, if we would work together, European scientists with a Chinese or Indian scientist, they would like to publish in, of course, subscription journals. And therefore, uh, Europeans would not be able to do that. And therefore, there will be no cooperation anymore with scientists from India and China who attach great importance still to the subscription journals. When I heard that, I was quite shocked. I said, I thought that scientists work together across the globe to solve societal problems, to extend and not the to get knowledge. Yeah. And if you're now telling me that scientists will not work together if they cannot publish behind paywalls in these so-called high-impact journals, I think we need to have a fundamental debate about the role of science in our society. So it led to some very heated debates and still today plan S, which is the plan to boost to its full and immediate open access, is still extremely controversial. Still debates take place every day, but I'm happy uh, that you know along the way, more countries and funding agencies are signing up to it. And the news, which I just mentioned from the White House, 25th of August, that they will also now give instructions to all the funding agencies, NIH, National Science Foundation, etc., to really make scientific results of publicly funded research immediately available without delays is, of course, fantastic news. And it's so important, especially these, these embargo periods that you also talked about. If you have an embargo period of you know, six months or you mean 12 months, then like no one can really, like it's just not available. And like that, the, the yeah. development that we need in order to tackle the big challenges we have as a society will just like be, uh, like be prolonged without yeah. any real yeah. reason apart from some kind of economic reasoning. Isn't well, it? Julius, interest you mentioned because my question was very often to the science community and to the publishers, what is the interest to society or to science of an embargo period of 12 months? Explain to me what is the interest for the citizen, for society, which is desperately needed and needing answers to certain questions and knowledge. I don't see any answer or any reason why, other than, of course, it's in the interest of the big commercial publishers. Yeah. So um, embargo periods are, of course, a ridiculous situation, which is not good for the citizen, not good for society, it's only benefiting one specific group. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, it's funny, but it's funny that these kind of institutions develop and then they just prolong in themselves or there's so much inertia or no one is really tackling it because they're afraid of other um, repercussions maybe on their own on their yeah, own and works and their forget, careers. I mean, let's not forget the market of scientific publishing uh, has a value you know around 15 to 20 billion euro worldwide eh? so and there's a few companies who are uh, more or less dominating that market so in a very strong position mm. and uh, they of course would like to continue that system, which gives them enormous benefits, financial, enormous profits. On some journals, profits are made of 13 to 40% on yeah. one journal. I mean, these are percentages of which Google and Amazon can only dream. Mm. Maybe maybe uh, Saudi Aramco has it, who, who only extract oil and then sell it to the market, where there's also not really any value creation behind it. Anyway, um, 
uh, Robert Jan, you already mentioned these two words, um, which is Plan S and co uh, and uh, Coalition S. Yes. Can you maybe give us an idea, like Coalition S, what it is, who's member of it, and why did you come up with creating a coalition? Why do you think is coalition building so important, and especially in your case? Well, when uh, I go back a little bit to the previous uh, uh, point, when I had this job in Brussels and I was asking to the colleagues what happens to the results of scientific uh, research, which we are funding because the European Union puts 10 billion euro per year into research and innovation, what's happening to the results? And when I looked into uh, the market of scientific publishing and I, and I saw all these uh, um, paywalls and the difficulty to, act, to, to disseminate knowledge and result of knowledge worldwide, I said, my God, that's not good. So gradually we are we're starting in Brussels to make policy guidelines on that. But of course, guidelines are, you know, <laughs> indeed soft law and not binding. So I mean- Paper tigers, they call them in Germany. Paper tigers, you're fully right. And then um, in my last year in Brussels, I got uh, a full-time assignment to work only on open access and to make a plan and uh, uh, to work as the open access envoy of Brussels. So that is the plan I developed, Plan S. And this is quite a radical plan. It's not a soft law. It says very clearly, it's a, it's a group of funding agencies, starting with Brussels, which has the rule that if you get the grants from any of the members of Coalition S or Plan S, or signed up to Plan S, you have to publish in open access journals of high quality. You cannot publish anymore behind paywalls in subscription journals. So that was the plan S. But you can imagine when I went with plan S or this radical idea to a number of funding agencies, they all said the same, well, you know, if we do it, uh, we are the crazy guys because we make everything available. And if my uh, colleague in Germany or France is not doing it, you know, we are, are not at a benefit, we are at a disadvantage. So my biggest challenge was at the time as Open Access Envoy to create a coalition of funding agencies from Europe and where possible from outside Europe um, to sign up to these principles and to form a coalition called Coalition S. And that took me to a number of European countries. And I must say, Norway was one of the first countries which signed up. Uh, very, uh, actually, charismatic, uh, the people there willing to join in. The same in the Netherlands, uh, the same in France, the same in the UK, uh, in Poland. So uh, the coalition grew quite quickly, the Wellcome Trust joined in. The Wellcome Trust is a very prestigious charity. Uh, the Wellcome Trust, a charity in biomedical research based in London. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation joined in. So gradually this, 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 uh, this group of funding agencies, this family of funding agencies adopting Plan S, signing up to an NS and being part of Coalition S, it was a coalition of funding agencies, they grew. And now it's, of course, great news that uh, also the United States, the OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy of the White House, is also joining the coalition, perhaps not formally, but signing up to all the principles. Super nice, yeah. And then, we, you know, you were just talking about also some, some challenges. What, what was the, the interaction and the deals then that came out with the publishing houses, with these major publishing houses? I, I don't know, did you assign any NDA? Can you, can you talk about names? You don't have to, but it's just like, what was, so then you, you got all these people into this coalition and you say, okay, this is how we do it. Was, yeah. And then when you read on Wikipedia on, on Planets, and then you see that there's, even in the last years, there've been um, like, there've been uh, um, publishing houses coming out and say, okay, now we, we go all in on that as well. And we do more in this area. And there's yeah. some names there and there's some names which are not there. So is there, I don't know, is there something you can say about it? I don't want to, you know. 
Well, I mean, everyone knows the names of these five uh, multinational enterprises, the big publishers, Elsevier, Wiley, you know, so from that point of view, Spring and Nature, they are known. So that's not a secret. Uh, and uh, certainly if you go indeed to Wikipedia, you see everything about planets and the discussions. Um, a couple of these uh, big publishers said, well, you know, huh, um, the system won't change. It's nice that you had a couple of uh, funding agencies decided in Europe, but our new market is China. And they will never agree to that. And the United States will never. So, I mean, the publishers were originally, when I talked to them with this idea, and I had a few funding agencies willing to support Plan S, um, the, the commercial publishers said, well, it will blow over. You know, we have seen it for the last 30 years. So, uh, you know, we are mighty, we're powerful. We're not, uh, we're, not, we're not at all intimidated by that. But I think gradually they saw that the tide was turning and that uh, the train was leaving the station and that more and more funding agencies were signing up to Plan S. So then suddenly they started to think what they could do. And uh, some of them invented those uh, hybrid journals. You may have heard about it. And These are journals. journals? Maybe, yeah. They called uh, mirror journals or twin journals yeah. or hybrid journals. Mm -hmm. And they have a part which is subscription and a part which is open access. And they said, uh, well, you know, this is an ideal tool, yeah, the, the hybrid journals for the transition to full open access, because over the years, then the parts on subscription will get smaller and the part on open access will get bigger. So they said, this is a nice tool. And I said to them, you know, fantastic, but when is the journey completed? Well, they said, we can't tell you. Uh, no, 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 that is, uh, uh, so it was a very clever way of the big commercial publishers to continue the status quo and to continue with subscription journals, even if it was in a hybrid form. So I said very clearly to them, listen, I have nothing against this uh, hybrid journals on one condition. You tell me what is the sunset date, put in a sunset clause that you say in four years time, 2024, the journey has been completed and the part each year of the subscriptions in this journal will get smaller and the part of open access will get bigger. So that in 2024, everything is open access. Mm. Well, there, you know, another debate started because of course they had invented the hybrid journals to keep the status quo, uh, very clever by the way, not to facilitate the transition. And there are a couple of them more serious, of course, with regard to open access. So the important message I left to Coalition S when I left in 2019 was of course, keep up the pressure on the big commercial publishers, don't go, don't give in, uh, don't let yourself be seduced by hybrid journals or longer transition periods, or, you know, 2024 is to know, be extremely tough. These are major players who have an enormous amount of money and uh, who make an enormous amount of profit. So don't be intimidated, but stick to the radical principles of Plan S. So that's at the thing, the moment, the biggest challenge people are facing. But I had very heated, of course, discussions with the publishers. Uh, I must say some of them were reasonable. Um, there were many smaller publishers of learned societies, you know, the small societies, publishers focusing on publishing very specific, say journals in specific fields. They were willing, they were facing financial problems, they needed support. So I think there were ones who really were willing to walk the talk. And uh, there were a lot of them who just uh, talked to talk. And at the end of the day, were hoping and praying that nothing would change. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering, it's nice that you just um, open this box that there, you know, it's not the publishers are not one, one monolithic group of, of actors. It's also there's differences between them. I was wondering, like, 
um, for example, presses like Cambridge University Press or Oxford University Press, which are NGOs, which are or like at, at least non-for-profits, which are connected to universities. Do you have the feeling or in your experience that they act differently than, for example, these very big commercial um, publishers like Elsevier, T T Wiley and these ones? Yeah, I think uh, you see differences, of course, between the society publishers, although there are also society publishers who really were uh, uh, running subscription journals and wanted to stick to that. So it's a mixture, but I think the overall statement is correct. The large commercial publishers, of course, who are on the stock market, most of them have only one interest, is to make a hell of a lot of profit. And they don't really care that much, you know, about uh, what is the sentiment or the views inside the scientific community. Yeah. While if you are a publisher at the university, Oxford Press, or you're, of course, in direct contact with your researchers at the universities. So the pressure there to go open access, of course, much bigger. Yeah. Uh, for the ones that maybe, you know, for the science communication community who's listening here right now, for the ones who might not be familiar with so like with numbers, could you give us an idea? I know because the thing is, when you when you publish open access, the money does not come from the libraries that pay, but it comes from the like from the funding agencies. And there is journals where you have to pay a thousand dollars, maybe two thousand dollars. But there's probably also journals where you have to pay way more is that the case can you give us an idea on like on the numbers for people who are not that close in the in the scientific community yeah well it's of course obvious that uh, if you want to get an article published uh, there needs to be an amount paid to the publisher in order to do this it's called apc huh? article processing cost and it varies there are journals who are charging 500 euro there are uh, ones who are charging 10000 euro so there's an enormous variety. Um, what I was doing when I went into this uh, job of Open Access Envoy, I tried to find out what does it cost really to publish an article, to format it, to do the peer review. How much does it actually cost? Especially and since think, since uh, the reviews are not paid, at least currently, well, I isn't mean, it? Yeah. The reviews are not paid. <laughs> All the work is done by the scientists themselves. So, I mean... I came to a, a fair amount of maximum around, say, 1,500, 2,000 euro. That is, I think, is a fair APC per article. And uh, I would never reimburse, if it was up to me, uh, say, more than 5,000, 6,000 euro for a, uh, for a publication. Uh, I know that Nature at a given time announced that they would charge uh, 9,500 for the publication, open. well, this is, of course, ridiculous. And it's up to the funding agencies then to say if they're willing to do that or not. Uh, I think, you know, um, it has to be reasonable. In my original plan, Plan S, there was also a cap on the APCs of 2,000 euro. I had to take that out because there were certain funding agencies who said, no, we should not do pricing policy, leave that to the market. But I still regret a little bit that I did not push that through because mm -hmm. you've seen an explosion of APCs and certain commercial publishers are charging quite too much for uh, for APCs, yeah. Yeah, especially if you have a journal that is has a big brand, as you, you just mentioned, Nature, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you publish with, you know, other things, then it's maybe not, not that expensive. So it's interesting to come back to, you say, why could the system continue so long, eh? the subscription journal system? And uh, we mentioned that it was a very comfortable system for the science community with, with, with the service they got. They, uh, there was this metric of the journal impact factor, which is very easy to, to, to measure the quality. But there was also another element, which I forgot to mention, is that the scientists did not see the costs of the system. Because 
they were getting their grants for research and the ones who paid for the subscription to the subscription journals for the academic libraries and it was not at all visible to the scientists how much these academic libraries were paying uh, i think that's one of the mistakes which probably was made in the past by universities they should have charged the uh, individual scientists on their grants for the subscription journals they were reading. Then I think the scientists would have much quicker embraced open access, but that was not the case. So that was, I think, another reason why the system took so long to change, that the individual scientists did not see at all the ridiculous amount of money which had to be paid to uh, uh, the commercial publishers to get articles published behind paywalls. Yeah. Yeah. So there's many researchers who work in Europe and European uh, universities and are funded with, for example, European money. And for them, like me, it's not that hard to get something published because you just call university or they have a deal already and you just submit something. And then you say, in my case, Antenu, which is the university where I work, Norwegian University of Science and Technology, please take care of it. And they do. That's very nice. But there's other researchers who might not be affiliated with the research organization or, or the research organization is just starting up and there's not so much funds or you're in, not in Europe or, you know, so general question, like who, like who, <laughs> what can researchers do who might not have, you know, the funds, if, even if they're really good researchers, but, you know, the publishing house just requires 4,000 euros, 3,000 euros. Is there, are there extra funds, uh, Robert Jan? Is there, was, did you think about these people too? Or is that oh, just yeah. a, such a small fraction and yeah. um, they hardly exist? Yeah, well, I think the biggest challenge of the whole switch to open access is, of course, uh, the money flow. There is at the moment enough money in the system. That's, you know, the big 15 to 20 billion euro, but it's in the wrong place. Uh, and the challenge is, of course, to transform that into a fund, uh, a distributed fund, uh, where individual scientists, also the ones who are not perhaps that uh, rich who could afford uh, paying APCs to let them benefit from that. So there's enough money in the system, but it's in the wrong place. And the big challenge is, of course, to change the system. Now, many funding agencies, notably the one signing up to Plan S, they have put aside uh, uh, money, budgets, in order to pay for APCs yeah, so that the researchers can use it. There's an agreement also um, with Plan S coalition and many developing countries that they will get waivers. And so from that point of view, the problem indeed is there is enough money in the system, but it's in the wrong place. And to transfer that to the new system is one of the big challenges the coalition S is facing and still facing today. Yeah. yeah. So, so far we talked about a lot um, about the yeah, single papers really that are being published in, in these journals. That's not the only way how the scientific community makes knowledge available. So one other big you know, area is books. And when you look at the planners webpage, it says pretty clearly, we acknowledge that publishing books is a very different game. They don't use the word game, but they say it's it's, it's very yeah. different than publishing papers. So can you maybe give us an idea of like what, what happened in that area? What is maybe challenging when it comes to books? Um, what what were major challenges maybe for you in the negotiations with uh, with publishing houses when it comes to books? Well, it was notably when I talked uh, about the Prince of Planets with the Royal Society in London. I met with historians and uh, um, for social science humanities, uh, historians and, and others, the main, say, uh, venue to publish our books and monographs. And they made it quite clear to me that they need more time. They said, you know, the deadlines are too short for us. This is quite a big change because they are used to work in a completely different way. And that's why also 
in coalition as in a plan S, we make an exemption for monographs and book. They get a little bit more time to go through the transition because for them it would have been too radical uh, uh, to go through that change. But they are not off the hook. Also, they will have to go to its uh, open uh, access uh, publishing, but they get a little bit more time. If you want to publish a book now, where where are there funds as well, similar as to when you want to publish a paper? You you just mentioned some minutes ago that that, that the funding organizations have put aside parts of the funds for book publishing. Is that uh, for paper publishing for people from other countries uh, who are not so fortunate? Maybe is that the same with books? Yeah, well, you see a lot of, say, charities, uh, learned societies, uh, foundations, uh, funding agencies who have money available for publishing monographs and books. Eh? So these, these, you have to search, you have to look for it, but ultimately this, these budgets are available. There's also another element uh, which we did not discuss, but is, of course, very much related to the Plan S. Um, we also should be much more restrictive in what we publish. Uh, we should get rid of this uh, perish or publish. Really? Uh, and, uh, really? <laughs> absolutely. And that's another thing. It should be much more about quality than about uh, quantity. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it, it's still fascinating. Look at the vacancies at universities. In many vacancies, people ask, give me the list of your publications. So, I mean, the more, the merrier. And of course, we all know what happens is people are cutting in order to have many publications. But it should not be about the quantity. It should be about the quality. And more and more universities, therefore, in their vacant posts, they ask uh, uh, the scientists who are applying, give me your, your five publications which you think are the best. And also explain why they are the best or why you think they are the best. And don't mention because they are published in Science and Nature, Mention why you think they are the best. And it can be because of the topic, that can be because of the impact, that can be of course whatever reason. But, you know, don't ask people to uh, go for quantity, ask people to go for quality and let them explain why they think these limited number of publications which they made were the best. So it's a cultural change uh, in the system. Yeah, yeah. And which needs to continue. <laughs> um, I, I, I never heard about it, but it's kind of a nice idea actually to have your five key key ones instead of sending us 30 that are maybe somehow mediocre or um, yeah. no one has read them. Yeah. yeah. And it, it comes down again to the whole rewards and recognition system. Look at many of the other vacancies, and I did that. Uh, not only does it only ask about uh, uh, publications uh, instead of just a few publications, giving you a maximum five, you also do not find in many of these vacant posts, these vacancies, uh, a statement of the scientists uh, uh, who has to apply on the view on, for instance, education. Uh, and uh, these people are supposed to also teach. But it's in the most of the vacant posts, they only ask for references on scientific publications, but not on experience on teaching or view on teaching on new teaching methods. Or and impact. It's very bizarre. Or, in, or impact. That's the third thing not at all on impact. Eh? Uh, how do you see impact? Uh, uh, what have you done in order to ensure impact of your scientific work? That hardly is visible in uh, vacancies uh, at universities. It's all about scientific papers and uh, the number of publications and impact journals and the more the merrier. So also there's a whole cultural change necessary in order to, to change the, the culture. Mm. Because as long as people only ask for in the vacant post for indicate the number of scientific publications, well, you know, the situation will not change. Mm. 
Now I have to be a little bit devil's advocate, uh, Robert Jan, yeah. and that is, you know, isn't that also maybe one of the reasons that there's just more and more research post opening and it's just the teaching responsibilities stay the same at many universities? At least that's what I see at Antenu is like you have this amount of classes and they've been taken yeah. care of. And if you want to become professor, you have to do some teaching, but it's actually quite hard to get teaching. And, and, and because the position that you have is it like in my case is a researcher position you're supposed to do research that's it um so maybe isn't that also that i love that there's a lot of research funding and i think this is we live in knowledge knowledge yeah. society so it's super key it's super important but could that also be maybe connected to that a little bit well you and um, what we are doing here at the university of eindhoven is to let people give the people the room to deploy their talent and their best talent and there are some who are by the way each of our staff has to teach and do research so there's no one who's only teaching or no no they all have both tasks but there are certain people who have an enormous strong passion for teaching and you know we are now allowing them to pursue a career then in teaching developing teaching methods uh, MOOCs online courses whatever so let them and give them the recognition and reward for that and the others who really are passionate about research and you know give them the recognition or there are thirds who are really passionate about impact eh? for instance working with industry transferring knowledge uh, startup scene uh, or doing science communication the most important thing is that you reward people for their talent and you let them express and use their talent and don't force them into one system being research yeah that's again to this thing what uh you know you can't ask a uh a can't ask a fish to be a very fast runner isn't it um it just Absolutely. comes down to that yeah Robert Jan, we're coming a bit to the end of this episode let's look at the future of uh, of open science so you know it, it seems as if a lot of things have happened also what you just mentioned in the beginning is like even the white house has done very particular steps towards it However, there's always challenges that remain, and we've touched upon some of them. But if you look at the future of open science, um, what what needs to happen, and what is where do you see the biggest one, two, three challenges that that we're facing in order to make open science, yeah, pretty much applicable everywhere, and that it becomes the main concept when we yeah. when we think about publishing. Yeah, we have been focusing very much on uh, open access publications, but of course, open science embraces much more. Open science is a cultural change in the system, which has as components uh, open access publications, open access data, but it has also a component of new uh, rewards and recognition system. We just briefly talked about that, that people not just rewarded at universities for their research, but also for the teaching and for other things. Um, it has uh, uh, an element of uh, diversity in it, uh, gender-related issues. So the whole open science agenda is a much broader one. Citizen science is an important component also of the open science agenda. So we'll be focusing a lot of this podcast on one specific element. Yeah. Well, open science agenda is, of course, uh, uh, much broader than just open access uh, publications. Now, where do I see the biggest challenges? I see the biggest challenges at the moment in, um, of course, the geopolitical tension there is, uh, whereby also the scientific community is more and more and say involved uh, look for instance uh, uh, even inside europe uh, where switzerland and the united kingdom are not participating anymore in horizon europe uh, for political reasons um, we see at the global level more and more tension more and more barriers to cooperation between scientists uh, from different countries 
So if you ask me what I see as the biggest barrier or threat to open science is, of course, the geopolitical situation. That's at the moment which I think is worrying. And we have to be very careful that uh, uh, the system we even had during the Cold War, where scientists were cooperating to keep the lifeline and the contact open, that that one way or another is continued. And I realize very well there's a war going on in Europe. And of course, with regards to Russia, we have to be extremely tough, uh, ruthless with regards to uh, institutional cooperation. Uh, there's also with regard to China, a very complex situation. But we have to be very careful that uh, the scientific cooperation movement, which has been existing for so many years, is completely hampered and we go into a kind of a nationalistic trend. That will not help us in the long run. And that is very unhealthy. So that's, I see, the biggest threat to uh, uh, open science. Oh, cool. Robert Jan, thanks a lot for joining me for this podcast today. It's kind of nice to actually have you on the podcast and seeing that you were driving that much so uh, forward. And I, I think this, this concept is really important. And I think all around me, it has already changed things in the institutional setup that we are living in the academic environment. So, so thanks for that. And um, yeah, thanks for joining me today. And uh, all the best to you. Take care. Julia, thank you very much. It was great being on the show. Take care. Eh? Bye-bye. Folks, that's it for number 41 of the Science Communication Accelerator podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Looking forward to have you back in two weeks. Up until then, take care and all the best to you. Bye-bye.